0: Tonight, I'd like to begin a series of talks on hindrances. So whenever you see Stephen sitting up here behind the podium, you can expect something about happiness for the next little while. (laughs) And whenever you see me, you can start thinking about the hindrances. Hindrances are a class of those forces of the mind that I spoke about last week. In Pali, the word is kalesa, in English, Perhaps they might be translated as torments of the mind. The various states that are conditioned in our consciousness that arise very frequently in meditation or seen very frequently in meditation that have the nature or the function to constrict or to confuse our minds if we fall into them, their arisal is quite natural. What we need to learn is how to relate to them quite skillfully so that they can arise and we can still be free without falling into that constricting and confusing function. Classically, there are five hindrances that are talked about, that is desire or grasping, and then aversion in all of its forms of anger and fear. Then sleepiness or sloth, dullness of mind, restlessness, agitation, worry. Finally, the fifth hindrance is doubt, the state of doubt. Tonight, I'd like to talk about desire or attachment. Sometimes, called grasping, sometimes clinging, sometimes greed. As a state of mind, when this force arises within us, it defines what we think we need in order to be happy. It causes suffering for us because it tends to generate qualities of divisiveness and exclusivity when we're filled with desire or filled with attachment we tend to seek to control our experience we focus on that which we think we need in order to be happy and we try to hold on to it it's not a question of desire being bad or wrong but it is essential to understand how it does affect us and how it brings suffering desire or attachment tends to see the source of satisfaction or happiness as somehow limited. It's contained within an object, within a person, within a situation. We fix on that object, and we want it. We try to hold on to it. When desire is very strong in the mind, then we begin to compete for that object. We start to see other people other experiences, other demands, as obstacles to our fulfillment. We just want to push them away in order to get close to that desired object and in order to try to keep it. This impulse restricts us in that it narrowly defines what's going to bring us happiness and what is possible for us. I've always been grateful that when I first went to India in the early 70s, I didn't appear there with a long list of requirements for my well-being, like hot running water or water or certain types of food or climate. I know now that if I did appear with a list like that, I could never have stayed. I would never have been able to stay to experience what in fact was the most significant period of my life. Thwarted by my list of desires, I would have been unable to take any risks. That's one of the ways in which attachment can make our lives more contracted. If we are fixed upon a certain object or list of objects or experiences, we might feel Quite genuine resentment against people or things that seem to obstruct our fulfillment. So there can be quite a bit of envy and jealousy. It's almost as though with attachment very strong in the mind, all that seems to exist is oneself and that object that we desire. This is a very isolated feeling. And so there tends to be a lot of loneliness in strong attachment or strong desire. We're, for, we're competing for happiness as though it truly was contained in a limited object or a person or an experience. Because we're locating our final, ultimate happiness in these quite limited objects of desire, we tend to overlook limitless happiness that might be available to us through the power of our own minds, through awareness, through love, through compassion, in any moment. We might give up a lot. We might compromise a lot in order to obtain the object of our desire. Because we're continually giving up something to get something else, maybe something more remote, more elusive, there's also this continual process of loss. This is one of the great ironies of desire because there's so many things that we can have in a moment without seeking, without clinging, without attachment. These are qualities of mind, the inner qualities such as faith or love, contentment, peace. All of these states aren't produced by a process of having more and having more to some kind of feverish seeking. But we tend to overlook them. I think of this time when, some years ago, I forget the exact year, but a friend of mine for the first time in his life invested some money in the stock market just before it went way, way, way down. (laughs) Subsequent to that, he found himself for weeks just avidly listening to the news and reading the paper many times a day all with a view as to how a particular world event might affect his stock and whether he might regain his money. So he said that he found himself hearing or reading about war and famine and calamity with the immediate thought, I wonder if this will help my stock at all. (laughs) He realized after some time that And the force of his desire, the force of his grasping, his need to recoup the money was robbing him of all of his previous feeling of connection to others in the world. His strongest values actually revolved around compassion. But all of that got left aside as he feverishly sought to get back his money. So finally, in the end, he decided to sell the stocks at a loss and to be happy. <laughs> it's important you know, to remember that the feeling of desire is quite natural. It's not as though it were extraordinary, as though it were bad. But we need to be aware of its potential dangers. In an effort to fulfill a desire, might we hurt someone? Might we actually hurt ourselves in some way? Are we becoming dependent on a particular object, particular situation, so that we need it to stay as it is without any change? Are we lost in that fruitless effort to control what can never be controlled? Are we thinking that an object or a person is going to be able to give us the very things it can never give us, some kind of permanent peace or happiness. In the Buddhist texts, they talk about the diluted quality of desire. It's likened sometimes to putting dye into a pond. When we want to see clear through to the bottom of the pond, but there's dye in it, our vision is altered, it's obscured. In just that way, it's as though the natural luminosity of our own minds is obscured. It's colored over by that dye of desire. The force of attachment can be quite diluting as we lose sight of what we actually do have in an effort to obtain what we don't yet have. So there's very little contentment. There's very little gratitude. Desire also deludes by its quality of temporary enchantment. In a state of strong attachment, strong clinging, it's as though we project all of our hopes and all of our dreams of fulfillment onto some object. Who amongst us in this life has not been lost in infatuation for a person, for a group, for a belief system, only to look back two months later or three months later or six months later and say, what was that about? But in the moment, it is so compelling. All perfection is to be found there. A kind of enchantment gives us tunnel vision. It comes back to that question, what is it that I actually need in order to be happy? Do I need anything in order to be happy right now? One year, we went to the Soviet Union to teach, as it was then. And we were there just about a day or a day and a half when there was the brief coup attempt to unseat President Gorbachev from power. When the coup began, of course, nobody knew how long it was gonna last or what was going to happen, and so there was tremendous chaos. There was fear, there was desolation, just everywhere as you walk through the streets. So We decided that it was probably a good time to go register at the American Embassy so they would know where we were. We found our way to the embassy, and there also, it was just incredible turbulence. People who were Soviet citizens were desperate to get inside the building. They were screaming out things like, I just got my papers to emigrate. Please, please, please let me go to America. We got inside, and there were American citizens there who had been involved in joint ventures with Soviet citizens. And they were quite frightened, many of them, at the prospect of not only losing a great deal of money, but for some, really losing a life's dream of working with these people. In the middle of all this, I was standing next to an American tour group, and we're looking up at a Marine guard who's standing quite quite a bit higher, and said to him, you know, what can we do? What should we do? In this, in this situation. And the only thing he could really emphasize, given the volatile nature of what was going on in the streets, was to stay away from crowds. So the group leader I was standing next to, in shock, looked up at him and said, does that mean I can't go shopping? <laughs> and the Marine just kind of shook his head. And I thought it was fantastic. In the middle of all of that suffering and all of that chaos, that is the tunnel vision of desire. What do I really need in order to be happy? (laughs) If you can imagine if we walked around all of the time with our bodies reflecting what we're doing with our minds, that kind of leaning forward, that dependence, that grabbing, that grasping can imagine how much our bodies would hurt as a reflection of what is going on in the mind. But in fact, our minds hurt, we suffer because of that same movement, that being out of balance, in wanting, in seeking, in trying to hold on, in being limited in terms of what we understand our happiness to come from. We find ourselves in any moment feeling dependent, on people, on objects, on belief systems, on something to stay the same so that we can rely upon it and be happy. We have an impermanent experience. And unable to grab it as it passes, we reach out for another. If we look just the way we look in meditation, very directly, quite nakedly, at our experience, we see this tremendous impermanence. We have a moment of seeing, and it goes away. A moment of hearing, and then it's gone. Smelling, thinking, just like bubbles coming and going. When we look carefully, all of our experience is just like this cascade of impressions. It's insubstantial. The Buddha used a lot of images to somehow try to convey this. Talked about life as being like a bubble, like a star at dawn, the experiences of life and life itself, like a flash of lightning in a summer sky, like an echo, like a rainbow, like a dream. If we're relying upon any of these transient, insubstantial experiences for a sense of permanent happiness or satisfaction, imagine our anxiety as things constantly change because they will. It was a period in my meditation practice, not the earliest period, which was so difficult and so full of pain, but after. Those initial difficulties, I went through a period where everything felt very good. When I sat, I'd experience these lovely floating sensations in my body, and I'd experience these quite serene and peaceful mind states. And I was living in India at the time, and immediately I would start thinking. Isn't it going to be wonderful spending the entire rest of my life in just this state? I would imagine myself going home in five years or even 10 years, just floating down the streets of New York in exactly that state, wearing my white sorry, smiling, happy. But needless to say, it never lasted, sometimes took 10 minutes, sometimes it took 20 minutes, sometimes half an hour. But my legs would start to ache or my back would start to hurt (coughs) or I'd feel sleepy or I'd feel restless. Every time that happened I would blame myself for the change. What did I do wrong to make those nice floaty feelings go away? But in fact they didn't go away because I'd done anything wrong. They went away because everything changes. It's like a star at dawn, like an echo, like a rainbow, like a dream. And yet here I was blaming myself and suffering quite a lot because I could not stop this flow of change and successfully cling to pleasant experience. When we're lost in desire or attachment in that way, We are seeing the world as somehow magically providing so that there won't be any bad things, there'll be no pain, there'll be no difficulty. But the world is magically providing and that doesn't exclude pain, it doesn't exclude conflict, it doesn't exclude difficulty. Pain is not a sign of something having gone terribly wrong. Our lives inevitably, naturally, are this changing succession of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, getting what we want, having it change. We experience this all of the time. This is what the world is magically providing, is pleasure and pain and gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. Still, we can be happy. It's extraordinary to realize that this level of change is outside of our control. It will continue to be this way no matter what we try. It's quite funny sometimes, if you just center on something like praise and blame, to see that even in the very same activity, born out of whatever motivation is giving rise to that action. From some people will receive praise, and from some people will receive blame. One of the first teachers, just as an example, who chose when coming into this hall to bow to the Buddha in some way, he made that decision out of whatever heart space arose in him, to pay respects in that way. He ended the sitting, and he said by the time he got out to the bulletin board, there were piles of notes for him. Some of the notes said, I was so happy to see you do that. It moved me so much to see that my own devotional nature had scope here that I could pay respects to the Buddha. Some of the notes said, I couldn't believe you did that. That was really one of the worst things I've ever seen here. You know, to, to bring in a kind of cultural anachronism into this hall. Same action, born out of whatever state within him, chose to do that. There was some praise and some blame. This is how life is. If we try to hold on, to imagine that somehow there will only be praise, we will suffer. To explore desire, to explore attachment, is to explore that effort to control. What is it that I actually need in order to be happy? Strangely, what we think we need in order to be happy is very often somebody else's construction of reality. My old and favorite example of this is the French perfume that's named samsara. As you know, many of you know, in the Pali and the Sanskrit languages, of classical Buddhism, samsara is this world of constant change, of birth and death and rebirth. When they first put out the advertisement for samsara, dozens of my friends sent me clippings. This is what the perfume ads say. They proclaim samsara as subtle yet lingering, a timeless fulfillment. And I was just reading in a magazine just this month about the years that they spent and the money that they spent coming up with that name, samsara. But is it really a timeless fulfillment? Is any amount of money buying a little bit of perfume going to be a timeless fulfillment? That is someone else's definition of happiness superimposed upon our minds. We may think in that same vein that we want a lot of money, we need a lot of money in order to be happy. But what do we actually want? What do we actually need? It's not that in any sustained way we want a lot of pieces of paper with pictures on them, presidents and so on. (laughs) And it's not even necessarily that we want all of the objects that money can buy, mostly what we seem to want is what having a lot of money might imply to us. It might imply security. It might imply power, having freedom to make choices. It might imply having time to play. But if we look very carefully, we see that after some of our basic needs are met, what we really want are those mind states. When we talk about wanting a lot of money, we're really talking about having security or having power, having freedom, having a sense of making choices. And if we pay attention and we look at people who might have a lot of money, we discover that sometimes they don't have those mind states. They themselves may not feel very secure or powerful, that they have a lot of time to play that they can make choices. We discover that the reality is that the mind states are a function of our being. They're not necessarily a question of what we have. I know Steve touched upon this, and I think it is a fairly common experience. Many of us have been in situations of receiving generosity from people who in any conventional (laughs) standard, have very little. To see the people in Burma come and offer food, just dressed in rags and offering the best of what they can, it becomes clear that a sense of generosity or abundance is not dependent upon how much we have. It is dependent upon an internal sense that we have enough or that it's important to share. We turn again and again to the state of our own being. Mostly, we live our lives in the delusion of relying upon what we have, how much we have. That's the essence of desire or clinging. It's characterized by a feeling of acquiring and owning so we say we have material objects, or we have people. You know, I have children, I have parents, I have a husband or a wife. We continue in just that same spirit of acquiring or holding on when we relate to information or we relate to belief systems. We hold on to our views and our opinions about things and create tremendous suffering, not only for ourselves, but for others as well. And thus we see our world, as it is right now, split into so many divergent camps of ethnicity, religious belief, all divisions measured out by the likes and dislikes of various belief systems. Even our own bodies and minds are seen as things to possess. We lay claim to our bodies as though they were not going to be subject to change, to aging, to disease, to death. We lay claim to our minds as though we should be able to control what's going to happen there. Isn't it going to be wonderful spending the entire rest of my life in just this state? As though the body and the mind were ours to control. Yet the body has the incredible audacity to give up, to die. And this mind will simply not obey us. We tell it to feel one thing and it feels another. We tell it to think one thing and it thinks another. Life itself is looked upon as an object that we can keep or we can lose. If we're seeking to possess something or someone, then we are creating a gap between the possessor and the possessed. It's actually a strongly self-centered feeling, since we're more concerned with our ability to hold on to this object or this situation than we are with enjoying the contact with it. If we try to hold on to our lives, then the holding on itself takes precedence over the quality of our lives. From this dynamic of holding, of keeping, comes a sense of duality and separation. We're trying to find complete happiness, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, by first having objects and then preserving them from change. And so we are quite isolated. If we own something, if we have it, we are positing a me, and an it. And so there is the separation. Once we have the separation, we have to try to control it. Many years ago, I received as a housewarming present a very simple glass teapot, which I liked a lot. It was one of my very favorite possessions. I used to think, boy, I really like that teapot. Then one day, I had some tea water boiling in the kettle. And I went to the stove to pick it up, and it broke. It shattered into all these pieces. And the water splashed on my hand, burning me. And then I had to come in here. Somebody else was giving a talk. And I was sitting, listening to the talk. And the whole time, I was thinking about how that teapot had betrayed me. And I was sitting there thinking, I liked it so much. It was really my favorite thing. How could it do that to me? How could it break like that? There was that separation. It was me. There was it. There was the seeking to control. There was the inevitable change. There was the inevitable feeling of betrayal. The person who'd given me the teapot was actually a friend of mine who was transcribing my tapes. And since I'd used this example in a talk, she heard it, and she realized that the teapot had broken. So she went out and she bought me another identical teapot. Which I had, and I really liked, but without quite that feeling of attachment or clinging. You know, this has to stay forever for me. So then I went away recently. I came back, and a friend had been house-sitting. And I got home, and she kind of sat me down, and she said, there's something I need to tell you. I said, what is it? She said, I broke the teapot. I said, it's okay. It doesn't matter. So she went out and got me another teapot. Now it's sitting on my stove and it's still there. But there's so many ways in which we get lost in this need to control what is going on because of that feeling of separation, wanting to possess, wanting to keep things a certain way. We may be serving somebody. We may be sending them metta as we are sitting here. And so easy in the generation of that metta, of that loving kindness, to have a feeling of demand. Why aren't you happy yet? I'm sitting here, I'm sending you all of this metta. <laughs> Or I'm serving you, I'm in a healing relationship with you, I'm in a helping relationship with you. Why aren't you getting better? You can see the difference between the true giving of a loving feeling and what happens when we are lost in expectation. We're lost in demand. Because very often, people will not behave the way we expect them to, just like that teapot. And so we feel betrayed, we feel resentful. When our relationship is one of having and dependence and relying on things not changing, we must try to control them. And so we become quite wary. We watch all the time, but in a very frightened and anxious way to see if we are about to be betrayed. It's a vigilance born of anxiety. That is one reason why the fulfillment or the happiness that we have in owning something or in getting what we want tends to be quite temporary and illusory, because there's nothing that we can have that will not change. And so there's always fear. Is it slipping away? Is it not as perfect as it once was? The Buddha said, in fact, craving brings anxiety, craving brings fear. And they tend to circle around one another. If we have strong fear, then we may find ourselves with an intensified attachment. Because if we fear that something will change, we may reach out and try to hold on even more strongly to find security. And then by its very nature, desire will also bring fear because we're relying on unstable, changing, (sighs) impermanent conditions to bring us final happiness. It's like standing on quicksand. Attachment in the Buddhist teaching is called the root of suffering because of these two qualities, the quality of seeking and the quality of guarding. Seeking is endless. It will not come to rest or a state of cessation on its own. We have an experience. It changes. We look for the next experience. Guarding involves that fearful holding on, trying to keep things from changing. When we are lost in attachment, We are lost in seeking and in guarding. Our projected happiness is thought so much to be contained in a limited object that we feel we have to fight for it. We begin to compete. But our basic primary happiness is never to be found in a changing situation. It's not contained in an object. It's not contained in a person. It's not contained in anything that can change. When we are lost in desire, in this way, we are also lost in a sense of linear time. We're focused on getting what we don't yet have, figuring out how we can get it in the future. Or focused on what we have, trying to figure out how we can keep it in the future. In Buddhist terminology, this reliance on linear time, this leaning forward of the mind, this craving is called bhava or becoming. Now imagine for a moment the stillness and the peace of not leaning forward at all. Just feeling one breath and not grabbing for the next. Just settling back into the experience as it actually is. That is being rather than becoming or bhav. That is the practice. It's not looking towards the very next moment, the next experience, we're holding on to this one. It's not leaning forward, it's settling back into the state that exists right now. That is where our happiness is actually to be found. Many years ago, when we taught the very first three-month course, it was before we'd found uh, this place. We rented a facility up in Maine. There was also a Catholic novitiate that had a beautiful chapel that we were going to use for the meditation hall. It was filled with pews, so hundreds of pews. So we took them all out and we piled them up in the storeroom in the back. One of our friends was sleeping in a corner of the storeroom for the retreat. Somewhere during the retreat, in the course of the retreat, he began to feel a lot of discomfort in his body. So he decided that in order to be able to sit and be comfortable he would first find the perfect meditation chair. So he toured the entire monastery and tried all these chairs thinking he would just take it and bring it back. Couldn't find anything. So then he decided that what he had to do was design the perfect meditation chair. He decided that he was going to sneak into the workroom at night and steal the material and the tools and he was going to make the perfect meditation chair so finding or feeling that that was the only way he was ever going to find any relief he sat down in his room in one of the pews and he began sketching this seemingly perfect meditation chair he decided that as he was sitting there, he realized that he was feeling more and more comfortable. And at first he thought it was because he was getting a really good design down on paper. And then he realized that it was because, in fact, the pews were quite comfortable. And he looked up and he looked around, and there were about 300 of them in his room. He'd gone through this entire tour, both externally and internally, and none of it was necessary. Sometimes the practice is like that. We go through these amazing tours only to discover that our happiness or our fulfillment is not going to be found in some new experience, the perfect meditation chair, but in settling back to what is happening right now. There's a word in Buddhist psychology that translates as thusness or suchness. It describes a state when The totality of our being is present. We're not divided. We're not leaning forward, hoping against hope that something better is just about to happen. There's not some part of ourselves set aside waiting. But really, our whole being comes together. That's thusness. It's suchness. We're not relating to our experience with clinging, with attachment, or pushing away. But we're accepting what happens, we're experiencing it fully, and we're able to let go of it as it changes. We're completely present. That is the experience of completeness and unity that is possible for us no matter what is happening. Whether our objective experience is pleasant or painful or neutral, we can be fully present and it is in that very nature of presence that happiness is to be found. Very often, we will see desire and attachment and clinging and grasping and greed in the mind when we take a look. Again, this is natural. It's not unexpected. It's not a strange aberration. And it's not even a problem. What is essential is to be able to recognize it for what it is, to acknowledge it, see its nature, let it pass. We say both literally and symbolically that we note it. That means that it becomes the object of our meditation. Rather than feeling thwarted by it, rather than feeling upset about the fact that it has come up, the very state of clinging or desire becomes the object of the mindfulness. It's that we settle back in the full presence of our being and we note it. We say there's clinging, there's desire. That is very different than telling a story about ourselves. I'm such a greedy person. I always have been. I always will be. Simply to use the mental note to express all that we want to bring to bear in that situation. There's desire. There's attachment. We're bringing to bear wisdom. This is an impermanent, impersonal state. I didn't invite it. It arose due to conditions. It's passing through. Let it come, let it go. does not refer back to a self that is unchanging. It brings wisdom to bear in that we realize we don't need to follow out all of our desires. Imagine the chaos in this room if even one person decided they were going to follow every desire that came into their mind during an hour sitting. It would be a lot going on. Imagine if everybody did that. We see desire. We allow it to come. We realize it may not bring us ultimate happiness. We let it go. Sometimes we feel the pain of it in that act of recognition. We feel the contraction as it gets stronger. So with some compassion for ourselves, we let it go. We settle back into that state of thusness, or suchness. All of that is the appropriate relationship. It's that which recognizes these states are out of control. They will arise in the mind. And with great wisdom, with great compassion, we can allow them to be there, we can let them go, and we can experience a prior happiness and freedom. As you practice, as these states arise, you needn't feel that a great enemy has come and that you've taken a detour from the path, but rather use them, use them as much as possible. Practice being aware of them, being mindful of them. There is great great delight and great joy, even in their arising as you gain confidence in the ability to see them in their own nature. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.